0: Providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses.
1: Good afternoon to most people on the East Coast, and good morning to those of you in Western time zones. Uh, I am here at Liberty Media's headquarters in Englewood, Colorado, with my friend, Greg Maffei. Craig, great to have you. Um, Thanks for having me. I usually have everything memorized for my interviews, um, but you're resume is so extensive greg that i'm going to use a note for to just start us off so i don't get anything wrong on this when is that I, I, is that a nice way of saying i'm old no not at all that's <laughs> a nice way of saying you have a lot going on in your life I, I will say i did alex rodriguez two weeks ago and it was very easy to introduce a rod um you're far more complex to introduce so i'll read through this and then we'll dive in greg uh, greg Maffey oversees the liberty family of companies as they compete in the digital mobile era liberty's stocks have consistently outperformed the indices and peers Liberty Media ranks number eight on the Fortune 2022-23 world's most admired companies in the entertainment industry. Buffet serves as president and CEO of Liberty Media Corporation, which owns media and entertainment businesses, including subsidiaries Formula One and the Atlanta Braves, and interests in SiriusXM and Live Nation Entertainment. He is president and CEO of Liberty Broadband Corporation, which consists primarily of a 26% stake in charter communications, and an Alaskan cable company, GCI. Muffet also serves as chairman and CEO of Liberty TripAdvisor, which holds a controlling interest in TripAdvisor. In addition, Muffet serves executive chairman of Curate Retail, Inc., which owns digital commerce businesses, including subsidiaries QVC, Home Shopping Network, and the Cornerstone brands. Muffet is chairman of the Liberty-related companies Live Nation Entertainment, SiriusXM, and TripAdvisor, and is a director of Charter Communications and Zillow. Prior to joining Liberty in 2005, Maffei served as co-president of Oracle Corporation, chairman and CEO of 360 Networks and CFO of Microsoft. He has an MBA from the Harvard business school where he was a Baker scholar and an AB from Dartmouth College where he formerly served on the board of trustees. All right, that's the bio, Greg. Uh, Let's start here. I was with our mutual friend, David Faber last week in New New York York, uh, on uh, Squawk Alley and um every time I watch you and David have an interview, the two of you go back and forth on the Mets and the Braves. You own the Braves and
0: you're I think I've a twelve game lead over in the Mets right now. Yes, this is not the year that David's gonna be giving me grief. <laughs> we've we've got a seven game winning streak. We're um uh a substantial lead in the in the NL East, substantial lead in the in national league altogether. Team looks Particularly good, given that two of our best pitchers have been on the IL and don't come back to the middle of July and the middle of, and the first week of August, but we still are looking very tough.
1: Why, owning a, the Atlanta Braves, being a Colorado-based company and also being a company, and we'll get into this in great detail, that has lots of synergies amongst the various portfolio companies that you have. Why the Braves?
0: Well, it sort of goes back to where we came from. You know, Liberty was the repository for a whole bunch of interests the TCI, which was sort of the Comcast of its day, the largest cable company, got, and that included a stake in Turner Broadcasting, which eventually became a stake in Time Warner. And we traded our stake in Time Warner for cash in a tax-free manner in the Braves back in May of 2007. So that's how we sort of worked our way out of an economic position, and we thought there was, it was an attractive transaction, and there was upside in the Braves, and it's, they've done very well. They've done extremely well, including winning the World Series.
1: Um, Let's back up, and then we'll kind of zoom forward like an F1 car to where we are today. But as we back up, uh, Groton School, Dartmouth College, Harvard Business School, uh, quite the pedigree. Always the smartest guy in the room? Oh, God, no. God, no. Those are places where there are lots of smart people. (laughs) So, But as I think about that, Greg, there are lots of smart people that you and I both know but there is a certain drive to you that is unique. Where's that drive come from?
0: Oh, I don't know if it's a drive. I'd like to think I have some level of energy, uh, some level of uh, resilience, some level of intellectual curiosity. I probably credit my parents uh, for that and um, and had a lot of luck because as you and I know, you were mentioning all the people we know along the way who for whatever reason, things didn't turn out as they wanted and how much of luck played in that.
1: Yeah, but it's, I guess, to some degree, it's a little bit more than luck as it relates to, I mean, the the move from Harvard Business School and getting to City Ventures, for instance. When you were at HBS, you got out in 85. 86, 86. Yeah. Um The industries that people were going to, venture capital didn't really exist then. Private equity didn't really exist then. Um, some of the early media industries or the computer, the PC industry was just
0: in its advent at that time. Um, what what did you think you wanted to do with your career? Ha. You know, he, he, you're making it look way more considered than it was. I had been an analyst at Dylan Reed uh. and didn't know what I wanted to do, so I went back as an associate at Dylan Reed. They were kind enough uh, to pay a lot of my business school expenses, and I thought I'd continue to open up opportunities. I sold a company to Citicorp Venture Capital, and looked at selling another one to them, and they asked me to join and a lot of what Citicorp Venture Capital was doing was not only venture work, but private equity. So I got to move from being an agent to more on the principal side. And that was the appeal of that. You worked for someone named Bill Comfort, who you've said was
1: a great mentor to you. What was it? What was unique about Bill Comfort as a, as a dealmaker, as a leader that yeah. you learned from?
0: So Bill Comfort is an Oklahoman who uh, kind of came out and has a down-home manner. And on uh, Wall Street, he was probably an odd or different character when he started in the 60s. And always kind of a contrarian thinker, always a guy looking for turning things over and looking for something different. Always a guy thinking a lot about different ways to manage risk. And I learned a lot about that from him. And um, uh, he had a way of torturing all of us junior people to make us learn things, but it was a pretty effective manner.
1: You went from City Ventures to be CFO at Microsoft. How does that, how does that happen?
0: Uh, there were a few steps along the way. Um, buyout business got kind of slow. 1991, United Airlines. For those of you who are old and wizened like me, know you know UAL kind of blew up the market. Uh, was nothing was much was going on. I was offered the opportunity to go out and be CFO of one of the portfolio companies for Citicorp Venture Capital, which was a home center chain called Pay and Pack Stores out in Seattle. And I had 31 thought this is our 30, or going to be 31. I thought this is a great opportunity to go learn something. So I went out to Seattle as CFO of that. Um, they thought that that was well positioned. It turned out it was going to get run over by Home Depot and Lowe's. Had a lot of problems. I basically ended up running the liquidation of that company. And while I'm out in Seattle, uh, some mutual friend said, you really ought to talk to this company, Microsoft. And I was early 93 and I sort of got lucky. It was, they had a bunch of needs around, treasury and deal making that they didn't have much experience in relatively so i sort of was right place right time and you go into microsoft mean that
1: was clearly right place at right time as it relates to the growth that microsoft was experiencing you've you've mentioned that you know working with bo gates was a real privilege and something that you've uh, obviously learned a lot from give us an anecdote of when you saw gates's genius play out? Like something that you were looking at a deal and everyone was saying, go here. And Gates said, we're going to go there or not do I mean, As you yeah. and I both know, many times the, 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 the real leaders are best at what they decide not to do versus what they end up doing.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure I have a, a specific anecdote, but I'll, I'll give you some perspective. I was really lucky. Um, he got very involved in working around cable companies and trying to think about the next generation of, of providing broadband access on the internet so I worked with him directly when I was relatively junior on a bunch of stuff and got lucky in that sense and the thing that was always amazing to me about bill where he stands out is you know we'd gather eight or 10 people around a table and say um, here's a business problem and bill would go what do you think or somebody would say what do you think what do you think go around the table and bill you know pretty much egoless would say you know i came in thinking x but really that's a better answer mm-hmm. You're Bill Gates. Why do you need to win an argument? You're trying to win the world. You're trying to win for the whole thing. And Bill was very good about making sure. Now, he could be pretty tough if it was a bad answer. But if it was a good answer, he would embrace and not and give credit. And you know, didn't have to be his answer. He wanted the right answer. When you think about
1: Gates, when I think about Microsoft and their history and the incredible growth that you experienced while you were there as CFO, um, after Gates stepped down and Balmer stepped in, the company, for all practical purposes, kind of flatlined for a period of time what is it about from founders to the next generation we've we've seen for instance another example that I think about is Jack Welsh with GE and then Jeff Immelt who went to Dartmouth and Harvard Business School as well just like you um, steps in and you know has a really difficult time not difficult time impossible time of replicating what it is that Jack Welsh had done at GE um what what was it that either Bill did or Bomber didn't do, if you will, from afar, because you were outside of uh, Microsoft at that point, that was so different?
0: Well, one of the things is clear is, is, you know, Bill left in my judgment in large part because, the, you know, the antitrust trial took a lot out of him, changed the tenor. You know, he went from being a boy wonder who created this amazing enterprise to this guy who was being portrayed as a monopolist and evil and everything. I think that took a lot out of Bill. And that took a lot out of the company. And the company was very much stalled and less innovative and more worried about how it would be perceived and what those kind of actions would take. And, you know, Steve wore a lot of that problem. Maybe didn't react as quickly, but um, a lot of it was set up for failure in that sense or made more difficult for Steve. And in some ways, that's true for, I would argue, for Jeff Immelt, who I know um, mm-hmm. and knew f- uh, from the Dartmouth board. You know, Jack Welsh wrote it, Hyde. Jeff may have made mistakes, but a lot of it was very difficult from where the point, the entry point was not where you wanted to start. Right. right. Particularly given how much they were focused on financial services. That, yeah, they the did, as you said, they had to clean up. They had 9-11. They had to clean up uh, all the financial services stuff. Now, yeah. We can argue about the mistakes they made, but it was not a great entry point for You want to come in as a CEO after things have been more abundant, there's things to fix and you can look like you're doing the right things, not like it's been here and you can only go down. But one of the things that as I look at Liberty's holdings, you've done an exceptional
1: job of putting great leaders into the portfolio companies that Liberty has controlled and owned. And um, Tom Rutledge uh, is one example that I think of. But as as I think of Formula One and when you all bought Formula One, Chase Carey, Um, had been at DirecTV, left DirecTV, and had gone to Fox Corporation. And then when you bought Formula One, rather than going and getting someone like the current CEO, Stefano, who had been in the automobile industry at Lamborghini and had been on F1 Racing with Ferrari, who would seem to be the perfect CEO of something like Formula One, you decided to go and get Chase to come in and be the CEO. And given the success you all had from a media standpoint and what you did with Netflix to get that contract done, in hindsight, it is a genius move. But what was it? No, seriously, Greg, (laughs) what was it that made you say, I need a media executive to run a sports franchise
0: rather than going down the typical path? So a a couple of thoughts there. One, uh, there was so much we didn't know about Formula One when we bought it. I mean, we had the right idea that this was a great global franchise that had been built for a long time, but had stalled over the five or 10 years prior to our purchase, hadn't opened up and recognized a change world of social media and how the media business had changed, hadn't been willing to invest in the United States, hadn't really thought about marketing and research. So we were right about some of those ideas that this opportunity was there. But you know, I if I'd probably known all the things I know, and I'm not sure I would have led to Chase. But what I knew was, and Chase did an unbelievably good job, and we owe Chase an unbelievable debt of gratitude. I think Formula One owes, the fans uh, owe Chase a debt of gratitude. What I knew was that Chase would be a guy who would point the North Star of the things that we needed. And really the most important thing was getting the teams on board for a new Concord Agreement. And having an outsider who had credibility, who was implacable, thoughtful, um, you know, built great relations and just kept pushing towards that North Star of getting the Concord Agreement done. Uh, You know, Chase was the right person absolutely for that. And Chase did an amazing job. And we knew that Chase's history. We'd been with him. We'd controlled DirecTV when he ran it. Mm -hmm. He'd gone back to work for Rupert. And I had told him for several years, Chase, I got your next job because we knew we were working on Formula One. And he would just roll his eyes at me and say, right, what do I know about motorsports? And I'd say, well, what we need is a guy who's going to set the right tone and the right direction. And we ended up hiring several people, including Ross Braun and Sean Bratches, who helped him dramatically. Ross in particular knew a lot about motorsports. But really, Chase being able to point that north, North Star was the absolute critical difference. It's usually you say that you were working on Formula One for a couple of years. Um, I've
1: read that John Malone said to you that when you invest in sports franchises, it's like taking cocaine, because you get addicted to it and you can't get away from it. And then when you got Formula One, you turned to him and said, we've gone from being the user to being the dealer. Talk, (laughs) Talk about why Formula One is distinct from just the
0: cocaine of being in the sports industry. So, you know, Liberty and John Malone from TCI, our history has been a lot of times in the distribution business, owning Direct TV, owning TCI, now being in Charter, so you're always paying for sports rights, and you know your your consumers, your subscribers want those sports rights, but they're expensive, and a lot of leverage goes to the sports team, and then in turn, a lot of sports teams are paying out much of that to um, uh, to the underlying players, and the unions are fighting. So there's a you know lots of tensions around. A lot of sports teams don't make money. This was really the the perfect anecdote where we were going to be somebody who wasn't just consuming sports rights, but actually generating sports rights, uh, being able to use that with distributors, being able to uh, build a great business out of that and yet still make money by owning the league. So it really was a great combination. And uh, we, uh, we were kidding about how, you know, for the guys for the longest time we were being paying for sports rights, we were going to get paid and be pretty happy about that. You have, um, in Formula One, there are 10
1: teams. Yeah. One of the things I thought was interesting that I heard you say was just that to expand the number of teams isn't just a matter of saying we're going to have an 11th or 12th team out there, but that in many instances that the actual tracks don't have the paddock space to be able to add additional teams down in there. You're building your own track in Las Vegas. Does the new track have a paddock space that could take on the expansion
0: of F1 if you were going to add new teams? Yes. We have accommodated, and that will not be a problem at Vegas. The real problem is, you know, the way the structure works today, there are probably, as I said, four or five garages, sporadic areas that would be difficult to put in 11th Bay. Um, Maybe that's solvable with money and time, uh, but it's not, you know, something you snap your fingers and solve. The other issue is, is that the 10 teams are splitting the profits that go to the teams and dividing in 11 ways is not something Hmm. they're particularly enthused about. There is a mechanism where there's a franchise fee where a new entrant would pay. You put that Uh, in place last year. We put that in place with the new Concord Agreement. And frankly, that was a huge change because historically there was no such thing as a franchise fee. In fact, the teams were not franchises. They were not. uh, We had the F1 had the right to add with the percent of the FIA, the regulator, to add new teams as many as we wanted. But we really wanted to create value in those franchises. We wanted to make the teams worth money so that people would invest and create, hopefully, parity on the track. And now the teams are looking and saying, well, wait a minute, we, we don't want to divide 11 ways. We are very happy in whatever is being proposed to pay for a franchise fee doesn't compensate them enough for the dilution that they're going to take for the 11th team. So I think in the right set of circumstances for the, you know, will we would work to get the 11th team, somebody who could bring a lot of value to the sport, a lot of value to the fans, um, you know, because of their position in technology, their position as an OEM, their position in marketing, some combination of all that. You could imagine coming to some kind of an agreement, but it's not without controversy, certainly among the 10 teams. And a U.S. Manufacturer on the outside because Ford's going on the inside of Red Bull,
1: right? But a U.S. manufacturer on the outside or a U.S. driver slash pilot. How? How? I mean, I would assume first of all these these drivers start driving cart when they're three years right. old, and the, we don't have in the United States the same sort of farm system, if you will, to create these
0: drivers that Europe does. Um, but the, my assumption would be- certainly not the same degree. There are Americans who do it, but, you know, as you rightly point out, the number in Europe is multiples, multiples of the U.S. number. And so, it, I mean, you have to have done
1: number uh, studies on it, though. Having a U.S. OEM as one of the, on the outside, or
0: a U.S. driver, it just would attract huge eyeballs, would it? Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, first, we have a U.S. driver, Logan Sargent, who drives for Williams. Right. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, seems able, you know, Williams has not been the fastest team. So there's a learning process and whether Williams will get up to speed and make him as competitive as Williams would like, and we would like, we'll see. Uh, Secondly, you rightly point out Ford is invested in the Red Bull uh, engine process and it's not inconceivable Ford could take a bigger role. Uh, There was certainly talk that General Motors was interested around the Andretti bid for an 11th team. Um, And I think You know, there's reasons to think that that could come about. You know, we've had other OEMs who could be very interesting as well, just to be clear. Porsche tried very hard to enter with Red Bull. Um, BMW used to be in the sport, left in 09. So I think OEMs, we're lucky we have so many OEMs now, as many as we've ever had, but having more OEMs, and particularly the American one, would certainly be a positive. And this, the the Formula One circuit, Greg,
1: is, um, I mean, it is, when I think about, moving a circus <laughs> and what Barnum and Bailey has to do to move all the animals. I think about moving F1 and it is, and, and you told me once that you all take on the responsibility to move mm-hmm. this around the yeah. globe. And one of the places that you've talked about, the only continent you're not on right now is Africa. Yeah. You add somewhere like Johannesburg to it. I mean, just the distances and the logistics of doing all this is just... An incredible undertaking. You don't just say let's go to Joe's Hammersburg. I mean, yeah, it's a millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars to invest as far as the infrastructure, the transport, and then also fitting it into a schedule right now. Which I mean, somebody once said to me on an airplane, my it was a traveling salesman I met in a, on a plane, and he said my travel schedule is the PGA Tour golf tour. And I kind of looked at him strange. I said, "What do you mean the PGA golf tour?" He says, "The PGA follows the good weather." So I do all my trips to Arizona in you know January and February, and then I move through and I stay out of the you know Florida come summertime, and you have to be very careful as it relates to both the drivers doing these distances, but how do you expand and so, add more races? So lots of questions. I know, I
0: realize that. Let's start with, um, we think it would be great to go to South Africa. There is a track uh, outside of Johannesburg called Kailami. Uh, We have been working with uh, local authorities and a promoter to try and make that happen. Haven't been able to yet, but we'll see if we can get it done. Putting the calendar together, as you rightly point out, is an enormous task. Um, And there's always the potential for movement. But we lock that down usually sometime in the summer. It gets approved, the FIA, uh, our regulator approves it with us and it gets announced. And we're trying to balance a whole bunch of things You're right, we're balancing wear and tear on the drivers. We're balancing, you know, you're not gonna have a race in a cold weather climate in November. You're gonna try and do those in warmer places. You're not gonna have a, you know, the the opposite. We worry how warm is it where we run it in Miami. Uh, You know, we would love to have them so they're all contiguous because one of the important things is sustainability. And Formula One has a very aggressive program to improve sustainability and be carbon neutral by 2030. And we've done a lot to reduce uh, our carbon footprint, reduce the generally what we produce. But obviously, tightening the distance between tracks we travel to is an important part of that. You rightly know, we move all of the cars, all of the infrastructure, the garages, all of the hospitality. That gets moved by us centrally, makes a lot more sense than trying to have 10 teams move themselves. We do it all. And is DHL your partner in that? DHL is our partner. Um, we, uh, it's, you know, it's an important part of our role as F1, uh, but there really is a careful balance and there was always the potential that something drops out this year because of COVID China dropped out, uh, this year because of the floods, sadly, and there were several deaths, Imola had to drop out and it's almost impossible to replace Mm -hmm. a race unless you have months of notice to your point, um, what has to happen. Um, there are places which would love to have another race. But the cost, expense, the logistics of just saying, I'm going to replace China with mau and Portugal, which would love to have it, and move everybody across is very hard. So it's an intricate dance of uh, putting, putting the calendar together. You talked about the franchise, uh, which was implemented in the new
1: uh, uh, agreement. There were two other changes there that I thought were interesting. One was you put a cap on how much people were spending, and then B, you made design changes to make it so that the the backdraft, if you will, behind the cars was making it so that you could pass easier. And it all seemed that that was gonna level the playing field. And then all of a sudden we come into this season and Max Verstappen has basically been having a run very much Lewis Hamilton-esque back uh, in Mercedes days. What, I guess, is is, is Max just that great a driver or is there something that Red Bull is doing that this kind of leveling the playing field actually
0: hasn't done what you'd intended it to do? So a couple of thoughts on that first, yeah, when we put the new Concord Agreement, as you rightly point out, we made the team's franchises. We made the a cost cap, which goes to the cost of the chassis. It doesn't go to driver cost or executives or marketing, but it was an attempt to try and create more parity. We uh, had some design changes, which, as you rightly pointed out, these cars uh, create massive downforce, which is almost like flying a plane upside down. They're gripping the track. The negative of that is they throw off a lot of bad air. We've done things to reduce that. And while Max is up front, and I'll talk about that in one sec, you, we can show you statistically, there is actually way more overtaking going on mm. in the midfield over than historical numbers. Interesting. There is, we can show you how many overtakes there were. I think there were in uh, 77 and not in Montreal, but the week before in Spain, um, which is a, a big number. We, we track this. We are trying to create an interesting product for our fans, obviously. Um, Formula One has had a long time when cars, uh, teams, and cars had a run. You go back; Red Bull had won four in a row. Then Mercedes won eight in a row, seven with Lewis, one with Nico Rosberg, and now we're on. Looks like we may have our third for uh, Red Bull. So it's not unusual. I think it takes a while for teams to catch up to some of these new regulations. What we can we can hope? Um, and then on on Max, as I mean, you know personally the two.
1: Uh, I'll be careful here because plenty of people think that Senna is in this group. But two of the great drivers of all time, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. Right? Is there anything from spending time with them
0: and Sebastian to, Vettel? Who we, and if, Sebastian if you look Vettel at our yet. look at the
1: tenure, we've had you know th- three of the greatest drivers in history. And is there something about their either focus, personality, athleticism that can say to you? they're somewhat different. I mean, you meet someone like Michael Jordan, who, by the way, was in Florida. You you, you tweeted out a great tweet that said, hashtag Michael Jordan, huh. hashtag Tom Brady, hashtag David Beckham. Where else can you find those three people? In the Mercedes garage right before the F- F- Florida F1, which to the point that Malone had said, if once you start doing sports,
0: it's sort of played crack cocaine. I can see how this is very alluring. But well, I would say it's alluring for the fans. Yeah, it's the very alluring for the fans, but it's also fun as an owner. It, there are worse businesses to
1: be in. Yeah, exactly. When they're working. But talk for a moment about that as it relates to, is there anything that you can, is there anything of the approach, the, the way that they carry themselves that says,
0: these guys are just cut from a different cloth? Well, you know, it's clear Max is an incredibly focused individual, um, aggressive, smart capable, training all the time, thinking all the time. And Lewis, Lewis is too. Um, you know, great skills. It's always very tough to know, you know, how much is the car mm-hmm. in Formula One? How much is the team? Cause it's a team. You know, there are a huge amount of resources backing up There's strategic decisions about tire changes and, uh, and, you know, lots of other things that are the team, um, and tire choices. Um, and then how much is the driver? Weighing all that is hard, but clearly we're blessed to have in our in the era where Liberty's been involved, three of the greatest of all time. Yeah, and it's interesting because when you talk about those things, Greg, we as the outside public now actually
1: have a sense of all those things you talk about, given Drive to Survive and the, and, and the Netflix series on that. Um, without that, does everything that's happened happen? I mean, how much of a catalyst was that to the transformation in the US? Because you now have three races in the United States, yep. uh, which previously you only had Austin. When you took it over, Austin had 80,000 people coming out on a weekend. Probably a little earlier, probably a little before we took it over. Okay. It may have grown by the time we got there a little bit. All right. But right. It's, well, it's, it's gone up a it to 400,000 or something yeah. like that. Um, but I mean, was Netflix the, the catalyst that made it so that all of a sudden F1 went from being a global sport to being a
0: US sport? Well, a couple of things. I think I started by saying, you know, in life, you, you, you hope you do the right thing. And, but there's huge amount of luck involved too. Other claim to credit, perhaps besides hiring Chase, was hiring, helping hire Sean Bratches with Chase. Sean came from ESPN and Sean, probably more than any other person, uh, was the person who said, the story needs to be about the drivers, not about the cars. Sergio Marchionne, the late Sergio Marchionne, who ran Fiat and Ferrari, Used to think, you know, my car is the star, hmm. and um, from his ESPN background, Sean understood that telling the story of the drivers, which was compelling, these, you know, handsome young guys who had lots of competitive issues internally against each other, thinking about the car, all the team stuff, was a there was a great uh, narrative here, and it was going to be a compelling narrative for our fans, and he was really the one who went to Netflix and there, you know, the line success has many fathers. Uh, but Sean is probably the true father. Uh, went to Netflix with the idea, drove it. And as I said, you can you can work hard, you can be thoughtful. And this was absolutely th- working hard and being thoughtful and the right idea. But we got lucky that Box to Box and Netflix did such a great job. That having been said, you know, there are many other elements opening up and telling that story that were important. Fan festivals that didn't exist, you know driving uh, the cars around Trafalgar Square and doing donuts, uh, opening up social media. Uh, the prior management would not let the drivers tweet, would not let them be on Instagram, b- believing that that would reduce the appeal for our broadcast partners because we were giving away product. We flipped that on its head, and now, you know, Lewis Hamilton has uh, twice as many Instagram followers as, or three times as many as Tom Brady. Uh, we opened that world up and... Netflix will, you know, we you can go race drivers on Twitch and race them in video games. So changing the perspective of which Netflix was an important part, but not the only part, and opening that story up to our fans was a huge part of what's made the difference. You bought Formula One for four and a half billion. Eight billion of enterprise value, four and a half billion of equity. For four something, four. It's two. now about eighteen billion. Yeah. Um
1: there have been speculation. That the Saudis wanted to buy it and your response 17 of equity to to cat to keep about the same to be like to like. Got it. Um there's speculation that Saudis made you a big offer to buy it. And your comment was given our tax basis in it, that we're 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 not we're we're not interested in something like that. But when I read that, Greg, I sat there and said, well your tax basis is always going to be your tax basis. There's the you own it. I mean, one of the, and this is going to now yeah. take us back to Liberty and yeah, yeah. is Liberty a PE firm? Is it a conglomerate? Or is it a holding company, which I want to go to next, but the, I, I get Floor the Floor wax answer. or a cake I get, topping. I get, I get the, I get the, we've got to have a low tax basis. The idea that we'd sit there and pay cap gains on all that doesn't make much sense to us, but then that just means that you never sell it.
0: Well, one of the things is you would say, are we a PE firm or we yeah. not? We're a C corp. And this is, you know, perhaps more, uh, arcane than some would want to listen to. We're a C corp, meaning if we sell a division, we pay corporate level tax and then any proceeds we would pay that get distributed to our shareholders, they would in addition pay tax. Um, If we were to spin Formula One away, create a separate company, wait a sufficient of time, have no plan or intent to sell, um, that asset could be sold down the road and there would be no corporate level tax. Got it. So what I really was saying is the way we are structured today, given that low tax basis, we would not be sellers if we wish to be sellers or even consider it, right. you'd need to do a spin. And spinning it away, there are other reasons why we might do that. It's not just to do a sale. But the way we are structured, that would be very unattractive. The other point I'd made is, and first, you know, and we, I've said this publicly before, um, Saudis have been partners on a couple things. They have a race. Their Aramco is a sponsor, but they never approached us. And frankly, $20 billion would not be an attractive price. It wouldn't, you know trading for 17, 18, uh, well, why 20? I want a hell of a lot more than that. And we think we're pretty bullish on the future. So um. you own in baseball, you own F1.
1: You can buy other sports franchises. You can go buy the premiership with, I mean, you now have done so much with this yeah, and created such a brand in F1 Yep. that my assumption would be, I mean, we watch what's happened with the PGA tour and live golf. I don't think we need to really dive into that, but there's lots that's open to you. But at the same time, Liberty's history is to buy on the cheap and then build value,
0: not buy at the premium price. And look, I, all these I I would dispute through. exactly buying the cheap. We'd like to buy for a fair price and hopefully build value. Okay, but, So look, a $400 million debt investment in
1: Sirius XM that has turned into billions of dollars of equity value is no. definitely buying on the cheap. That was lucky.
0: Um, look, a, a couple of thoughts. thoughts. Uh, credit the teams at Formula One and the teams at the Braves because I, we haven't really talked about the Braves, but I believe we have... The best uh, management team in baseball there, creating both uh, a great on-field product, product Alex Anthopoulos, our GM, um, at a reasonable price with a long-term future with young players that are well set up on contracts. But also uh, the team, Derek Schiller, Mike Plant, obviously Terry McGurk is the CEO, have done a great job on the business side as well and uh, building out Truist, um, the whole battery, our development around that. Truist is the field for those who- Sorry, Truist Party. And there's uh, also a bank that's your team sponsor. They're, they're, they're the sponsors. Offers. They're the sponsors for us. Um, you know, I think dem- demonstrated expertise, the demonstrated success of Formula One, we now have, credit them, a reputation in in sports. And others have we have talked to have been interested in seeing if we could help them and replicate that. And so, you know, you mentioned premier teams, premier league teams- you know, there isn't an asset that goes by that we haven't looked at. That doesn't mean we've been ready to buy them all. But we we look at everything because um, we do think that sports in general is attractive. We do think there's upside. And we do think there are things that those management teams have taught us that we've learned that we can help apply uh, perhaps in other sports situations. Your comment about the Braves and the
1: the real estate play and how valuable that's been, um, the battery, which is the the whole area outside of Truist Field. Um, As I've told you, we have the loan on the apartment building there, which is owned by Cortland Partners, a very large client of Walker Nellops. And I was talking to Stephen DeFrancis who um, uh, runs Cortland. And his comment was to me, the the walking mall that you've created there has been too successful in the sense that residents move into the battery and they're thinking I'm gonna be at Main and Main and have a lot of activity around here but it's so much that after they've been there for six to nine months, they're just like, man, I'm living you know, on Bourbon Street every single day and I gotta go live somewhere else where I'm not downstairs all the time, which is interesting. I mean, it's almost been a product of its own success. All that's done for them is it's full all the time. It's just that their churn of the units is actually higher
0: than, if you will, pro forma. So what's amazing is, you know, baseball's 162 games, 81 home games. Uh, the battery, to your point, uh, is busy. A hell of a lot of nights when there are no games. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, this may not be right post COVID, but I knew the stats pre COVID and there's no reason to think it's changed. Uh, of the 10 highest grossing restaurants in the Atlanta area, three are at the battery. Wow. Um, they've built a juggernaut there, hugely successful. And it's, it's helped create part of the, the interplay between uh, the team is an exciting team. There's an exciting on field product, but it's a great entertainment experience. It's a great, dining experience. It's a great experience and people go and hang out. And that really has been highly synergistic. So as we think about
1: Liberty and the various portfolio companies that you all own, there seem to be two broad categories. One is audio and the other one is sports. On the audio side, Greg, um, I've heard you say numerous times that you're not a fan of scripted content. Um, explain why Liberty has stayed away from the scripted content area and focus so much on audio and music. Yeah.
0: So just for your viewers and listeners, when I said scripted content, I know you meant it really video content, uh, and there has been a war in video content. We used to be a player uh, as a as a producer distributor with owning stars, and we sold that. I don't know five or six years ago in the belief that that business was going to get a lot harder, and I would argue it has. Um, you know, Netflix, Disney, uh, Warner Brothers. There are a lot of huge companies competing there. Um, Not all of them are making the money they hope. Uh, The winner here has been the consumer. Um, There's 600 new shows produced a year. Uh, Cost of production over the last five or seven years has probably gone up three times, cost per hour. There's just a plethora of content. And that makes it hard to make money. And you've gone from a world of the cable networks, which were bundled and had relatively low churn, to a world of streaming where... High expense in making content, high expense in marketing that content, and then really easy for people to disconnect so that the churn rates are very high and you don't have the sustainability of a customer or a subscriber that you would like. Um, We didn't find that attractive. There were a lot of, as I said, big players. We weren't going to be one of them and have stayed away. If you think about the assets that
1: you own on the audio side, you've got SiriusXM inside of that. You've got Pandora. Um, you've got a very significant stake in Live Nation, which also has Ticketmaster. Um, you, you're you at a point now where if you were to have, for instance, a, a, an agency like uh, Endeavor, uh, or you were to have a label, um, you basically have from kind of cradle to grave the ability to find talent, promote that talent, put on both recorded as well as live entertainment, uh, access to them, promotion of them. Um, it's amazing the stack that you've built up in that, um, and you're clearly getting leverage across them. Talk for a moment about the user of Sirius XM, which I think is people like you and me, the users of Pandora, which clearly isn't our kids, is someone between you and me and our kids. Yeah, no, that's right. And then some of the other ones out there today that are capturing that. Younger demographic and how you all are investing in either the older demographic, which is sticky and high margin, versus Pandora, which is that next demographic. Because the numbers are quite something. I think you've got thirty-five million XM serious subscribers, and then there's something like almost seventy million Pandora users. And so it, it's. In, I thought it was interesting that you've got like yeah. two X then of Pandora users than you do serious. But they're also on, well, they're both
0: subscription businesses as well. Well, let's let's yeah. let's let's parse that. So you know, Live Nation is a separate company. From Sirius XM and runs its own business. And Michael Rapino is on the Sirius board, but he runs his company. And Jennifer Witts runs Sirius XM. And there are some places they operate together, but they really are independent companies. They're both at what I think are the most attractive parts of the business. Um, Touring has grown uh, enormously. You know, the long term decline of uh, records into CDs into. You know, just purchasing music became renting music through streaming services, and that's meant that touring has had a lot more value, and most of the great big acts make the bulk of their money off touring, Uh, and that business has exploded. Moving over to the other side, when you think about even streaming music has some of the challenges that we've talked about with churn, we've talked about with scripted content, the... Most attractive element we love about SiriusXM is relatively high ARPU. We're not just relying on music. ARPU, average revenue per user per month. We're not just relying on music. We're relying on all of the different kinds of content that we have and differentiate and provide. Howard Stern, CNBC, ESPN, um, NFL, MLB, a host of kinds of content, as well as really for older audiences like ourselves, you know, lean back content. Uh, I love Channel 23, The Grateful Dead. Uh, you might be 56, The Highway. Right. Um, people love that, you know, being having that music chosen for them and and that lean back experience. So there's a variety of content. The subscription business, where either the ad-based one for streaming or the subscription one, those are still more competitive. And Pandora's in a tougher part of the market, uh, up against the Spotify and Amazon and Apple Music. Uh, so you know, wide, wide range across the portfolio. When you mentioned Howard Stern, Greg, I think about
1: the movie Air and what Nike and Phil Knight did to sign that contract with Michael Jordan and how much of a leap of faith they had to make. And obviously it paid out handsomely. You and I are constantly as CEOs presented with a decision to either break a business model or stick within the business model. When we hire bankers and brokers at Walker and Dunlop, I try and stay, I may pay someone a lot more money than someone else, but I try and keep the general parameters of the contracting the same, because the moment I go and break someone's contract, someone else comes in and asks right. for the same thing. Um, and I thought it was fascinating in that movie, how they went and gave Michael Jordan a revenue share. You've been very successful at keeping Howard Stern on serious. And my understanding of it has just been that that, Having Howard there as this marquee figure has been extremely valuable to the brand. Um, In all of the various businesses you own, you've been noteworthy at identifying great talent and saying, basically, we will pay that talent as much as we need to to keep that in there. Am I right that Howard Stern has just been a
0: franchise player for Sirius? Absolutely. Howard has, and Howard is so critical now. But think about how critical Howard was when we were starting and really merging first Sirius and then Sirius XM together and bringing that, you know, power. Uh, When we were involved in 2009 and Howard, you know, predates that obviously, but we got involved in 2009. We had 18 million subscribers. Today we're 35. Um, You know, when he was that much more important when we first started, he's still so critical and he has changed and morphed himself from being you know the shock jock into really so much the arbiter of how to do an interview what's what's taste out there and howard is well paid and he deserves it because he is uh sets the tone uh there are clearly millions of subscribers who are there because of howard and we've worked hard to create an environment that howard will operate in that he enjoys um so it's worked well for both of us Let's talk about direct sales in QVC
1: and Home Shopping Network. Um, predominantly cable distribution, although online has grown. Yep. Um, a very, the demographic is um, 90% female. Ninety ninety five. yep. Ninety ninety five 95 female. Um,
0: but that business is basically flat, declining. Um, a couple of things. Uh, tied to, as a promotion vehicle, television. So as we've gone from a world of 105 million cable households down to 75, that's been an enormous headwind. Uh, More recently, an enormous headwind around some degree changes in the consumer economy, but also a warehouse fire we had about uh, 18 months ago in our largest warehouse that was a massive disruption, not only to the goods there, but returns and shipping times to customers and being able to put product on that they wanted. So- Uh, Lots of challenges we've gone through in that business. Um, Just to note, uh, the business today is a lot of online, but what happens is it gets promoted across the television and then people execute through the internet. Um, And that will continue to grow and the internet will be an enormous source of our strength, not only as an execution arm, but really as another means to promote and to bring video, which we're very good at, uh, to customers in new ways. In the first line of the bio I read at the top, it says you're leading Liberty
1: into the mobile media world. Um, As I think about your stake in charter, the investment in charter has been incredibly successful and valuable to Liberty. Um, And yet at the same time, people seem to be, if you will, clipping the line. And you just talked about the number of cable subscribers coming down. What's, the, what, what's that mix going forward as it relates to, you know, the ability to either convert the cable infrastructure into something that allows you to do backhauling and use the incredible data capabilities of cable networks. And at the same time, the future is clearly mobile. And, um, you know, as yeah. I was out on my bike this morning getting ready for this, I literally downloaded my notes and put them on my bike computer as I sat there and biked along to think through the things I wanted to talk to you about. And I sat there and said to myself, this is about as mobile as you can get being on a bicycle reading
0: notes for a, for an interview. Right. A uh, couple thoughts. First, you know, the strength of cable companies is the infrastructure that they've built out in the United States. And historically, uh, that began by providing uh, video and frankly, it wasn't even uh, cable networks. It was providing where people couldn't get it. Then the general networks, uh, Cable networks came in over time, created a new arm and a new uh, growth in the revenue stream. And uh, if you look over the last 15, 20 years, the real growth has not been in video. It has been in uh, broadband, high-speed data, and providing broadband access. Uh, And that is a much higher margin business, the video business, because of the rising costs of programming, including sports programming, as we talked about earlier, that margin has declined. So video as a percent for all of these cable companies is people are cord cutting and the cost to provide it is gone up in terms of the content. So that is a much smaller part of the business today. The big earner has been high-speed data, but the new uh, arm to hit the mobile point is, is growth in providing mobile services. And we have what's called an MVNO, a mobile virtual network operator, partnership with Verizon, and where really, the last mile is provided uh, by Verizon, but 85, 87, 89% of the traffic is running over our pipes. Mm-hmm. And that's caused an enormous growth as we bundle that mobile offering, Spectrum One, with our, with our um, high-speed data product. We added 688,000 lines in the first quarter, hmm. um, which was, if you take Comcast and ourselves, we were more than half the market growth. So the the next generation opportunity or the current generation opportunity that will be the next generation of growth is really in mobile for these cable companies and charter in particular. So your outlook for cable is still quite positive.
1: I think cable is well positioned, yes. Yeah, that's great. Um, As we think about um, AI and the advent of AI and how AI is going to transform our world, it made me think a little bit about TripAdvisor. And the reason it made me think about TripAdvisor was Google changed their algorithm to make it so that Google-owned travel advisory services were put up top and then paid was below that and TripAdvisor kind of fell down below and you and the team are working to change that after the algorithm changed. But it made me think about AI, Greg, and the fact that those who control the AI algorithms are going to have a huge... Um, ability to control. I mean, you do a search on top real estate services firm and all of a sudden, you know, W&D either makes it in there or CB is right. is perfectly put in that little uh, uh, paragraph that comes out, uh, plan my trip to Europe. And all of a sudden you must stay at the George Sonk rather than somewhere else comes into it. Um, how are you thinking about the future of AI and making sure that the the products and services that
0: Liberty owns are, if you will, at the top of the search? So I think uh, AI, uh, potentially a threat for many businesses, but I actually think is a real opportunity for TripAdvisor. So much of what we have, and it's interesting, because now the algorithms you mentioned, you know, there are a lot of open source algorithms. There's a lot. In many cases, what really matters is the data you have, the large language model. And we have an enormous amount of data supplied to us through these reviews, the information we receive from people who write those about, hey, it's not just... You know, the George sank. It's and I'm a biker. I know you're a biker, Willie. Really. And what's the best place if you're going to be a biker that has storage that will let me store my bike? The, is the closest place to get to a track? What's a, you know, finding the nuances of what is your experience and having the large language model that hey somebody told us that yeah that is the best place to bike, and or that it does have racks or that will re- let you rent a bike. So it's the nuanced information that we can provide to travelers that I think is going to be very powerful. Hmm. Interesting. And looking at any
1: other investments in the AI space, that that seems a little bit out of the audio sports focus of Liberty, but I'm just, I am mean, you get access to so much and you see yeah. so many
0: opportunities. Look, I, uh, uh, I've had dialogue with Alex Anthopoulos, our GM at the Braves, about AI and how we're using it, the Braves. Yeah. Um, TripAdvisor is very focused on using AI. Charter's got a session in the next upcoming board meeting about how they're going to be using AI, mostly around consumer interactions, Um, but there isn't a business that's not going to be impacted. There are businesses that have already been enormously impacted and have been using it for a while. It's just now caught the common conscience and so much of it, customer facing has changed.
1: Finally, on a company that you're a board member on, uh, Zillow, um, that... One of the things I heard you say that I thought was quite interesting in this whole mobile versus uh, tethered uh, search, you'd think that Zillow mobile searches for homes would be off the charts. And at the same time, I heard you say that using the mortgage product is also more used online than it is sitting at your desktop. And that as someone who sells mortgages, not 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 uh, single family mortgages. But that was counterintuitive to me, that people would be sitting there looking at a house and also at the same time
0: checking out their mortgage terms of what they're going to buy. You know, mobile, uh, my old boss, software eats the world, uh, Bill Gates, mobile's eating the world, right? People's willingness to do everything on that mobile device is amazing. And yes, people look, shop for mortgages on their mobile phone, and that's very common. And I think, you know, you, you probably see pieces where people are driving around, uh, see a home, look it up on Zillow, figure out what they would cost, figure out what the mortgage would be literally the real time. And that kind of interactions has changed the world. So mortgage costs have gone up
1: precipitously and single family home sales, um, have come down given affordability issues. Your outlook for the economy from here. And what do you think Jerome Powell is, uh, up to <laughs> as it relates to rates? Let me just take it from the, from the Liberty view to the broader Greg McFay view of where's the market going?
0: Well, I, I, uh, Certainly don't have any particularly great insights on that. I watched all I, I was listening to, before we uh, got on this morning, I was listening to Jay Powell was on, uh, on uh, testifying yeah. in the house. Um, I'm lucky, Jay Powell and I used to work together 35 years ago, so he's a friend. Mm-hmm. And so I listened with interest to, um, he, uh, you know, hard problem, how do you balance and what's really happened to inflation and when's it done? And obviously the tension on trying to create the soft landing, not blow up the economy, Not an easy challenge. Uh, Looking at the real estate side, I know, you know, the percentage of uh, people who can move without and get a lower price mortgage is something like one to five percent, depending on how you count it. So it's obviously a huge deterrent to that business. Um, I do think you will see some weakness in housing prices. I look at places, I don't know if you've seen what's happened in New Zealand, where prices have absolutely crashed or down like something like 18% on average. I don't think we're going to have that kind of a number, but I do think you'll see some decline in that. And But generally speaking, in all of your other businesses, the consumer
1: is as strong as ever. The Formula One's yeah. sold out. Um, people are signing up for
0: serious subscriptions. I mean, are you seeing consumer strength? So I would say high-end consumers Remain spending. Yeah. And that's what we see. So if discretionary income. Formula One is discretionary income. The Atlanta Braves, a lot of discretionary income. Um, but you purposely tried to keep your ticket prices low to keep that. The, is, the, am the I right Braves that? is a pretty reasonable, certainly at the, in the middle of, of where baseball is, do not chase it, even though demand is very high. We have the highest yield of any stadium, huh. meaning we're well sought after. I think it's 94% sold out last year. We were fourth, over 39,000 fans per game. Very popular. But we have not chased the last dollar in ticket prices. The uh, live strength in live entertainment. I was just going to say yeah. Live Nation. That that part's very strong. Um, you know, much more weakness you see consumers around QVC and purchasing goods rather than services. Uh, that's not. You know, that doesn't have the same tailwind that we've seen around these experiences and around the higher end consumers. Yeah. Um, finally, first of all, thank you for all your time.
1: Um, I want to know: Have you ever done a hot lap in a Formula One car, or have you gotten in that track car, like the Mercedes with Lewis Hamilton? There was a really fun David Letterman interview with Lewis Hamilton, and he threw him in the he threw him in the car, and just they had the GoPro on on on, on David Letterman. It's just hysterical to watch Letterman's face as Lewis Hamilton's thrown around these corners. But have you ever driven a Formula One car, and have you ever done a hot lap with one of these drivers? So they
0: will not let me get in a Formula One car. Okay, but I have been in a. Ferrari 468, which is just below a two-seater, and you walk up, you don't know the driver, so somebody who's been either a Formula One driver or nearly a Formula One driver, you don't know the car, and you don't know the track, and five seconds later, you're going 150 miles an hour, up to 175, you come into a turn, and you get down to 40. And the difference between this car and a Formula One car is they brake at 200 meters rather than 100 meters, but it's still jarring, right. and it's unbelievable. Uh, it's an amazing experience. They, they, they first build it up and hype. You say, Greg, you may not want to do this on a day where you have meetings in the afternoon. It could be, it's, it is amazing. It was not traumatic, but it is dramatic and, um, very cool. I have, uh, driven a car that's similar to that. And, um, we did our, we announced Las Vegas last November. We had a bunch of drivers. Mm -hmm. They first had uh, me with Stefano my passenger drive as a pace car around the place. and I wasn't doing donuts, but we did some pace. and I think Stefano was more scared than he would possibly let on <laughs> that I was gonna it's gonna wreck us both, but it was a lot of fun. but they will not let you get in an actual car. I don't think, uh, you know, I'm not that big. I'm not sure I could fit. I might get in getting out. These things, you gotta be really I mean, quite uh, uh-huh. petite and they will not let me drive those cars <laughs> well. Um, Craig, thank you. It's uh, been a real pleasure. Thank you. thank, thank you
1: for joining us today. Thank you for the listening audience or it's viewing audience. It's been fantastic. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Uh, it is the summer solstice, so um, enjoy every minute of today. Um, and uh, thanks again, Greg. Thanks, fully. Thank you.